0: We are the hollow men, we are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpiece filled with straw, alas. Our dry voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Those are the words of uh, T.S. Eliot writing in 1925. Uh, Eliot wrote that uh, poem, The Hollow Man, during a period of intense dissatisfaction with the world in which he found himself. He was one of the intellectual stars of society. He was hailed by some as the, um, in the 1920s as the Einstein of English literature. But Eliot was actually deeply dissatisfied with the atheistic, morally chaotic world that he lived in. He, he lived amongst uh, um, virtually all the key thinkers who influenced uh, profoundly the 20th century. People like Bertrand Russell, Virginia Woolf, John Maynard Keynes um, and, and, and on the list goes. But he confesses in that poem he fi- found them hollow stuffed, straw-headed, they're taught meaningless and lifeless as dry grass. A couple of years later to uh, the uh, even greater horror of those friends, Eliot was baptised into the Anglican Church. What T.S. Eliot saw in 1925, I think, is so much more true today. One thing that uh, the the recent general election demonstrated to me was the lack of any solid vision, actually not only amongst, not particularly amongst our politicians, but in our nation as a whole. People are motivated today uh, um, far more by by uh, small promises of narrow self-interest than, 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 uh, than by thought of sacrifice for some, some great vision. They are motivated far more by um, anxious fears of immigrants or whoever else we want to stir up fear about than they are of, of, of some big hope for society. I don't think, frankly, we can blame the politicians. They've just become very sophisticated at spotting what is going on in society. You call people today to sacrifice for a bigger vision. They will not vote for you. We are the hollow man. What I want to say, though, this morning is that sometimes I wonder how different Christians are. The Bible sets before us actually a radical, alternative, glorious vision for life. It calls us to live as an alternative community, living in the world for Christ, doing our job, loving others for the glory of God, holding out the gospel of life to the surrounding world warns us that there will be trials and difficulties in that life but assures us of God's provision and care. It sets before us the final promise of God, of life beyond death, of a restored creation, of no more mourning or, or pain or dying. But actually, in, just like the rest of the world, it seems to me we become in, so easily obsessed by trivia. We become inconsolable when life is a bit hard. Didn't Jesus describe life as taking up our cross? We become furious when we are mistreated or misunderstood. Didn't Jesus say rejoice and be glad when they say all sorts of of things about you because so they treated the prophets? We allow minor irritations with fellow Christians to, to drive a wedge between us rather than exercise that costly love that the Bible talks about which always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Frankly, to borrow, borrow Eliot's imagery, there is far too much hollowness and stuffness about us. And that's my real concern. It seems to me no surprise then that when God's church speaks, she often does not speak with the roar of the Lion of Judah but with a meaningless whisper, as Eliot put it, as wind in dry grass or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Now, I don't want to, for a moment say that is universally true amongst us. But I do want to say we need to ask deep questions about whether really we are growing in the dimensions that the Bible calls us to. The solution? The solution is what Paul talks about again and again in his letters, what he tells us he's praying for again and again and what we have come back to again and again as we have been uh, um, studying Paul's prayers. The solution is to know God. David Wells in his book, uh, God in the Wasteland, put, uh, writes this. He says, God now rests too inconsequentially on the church. His word, if it is preached at all, does not summon enough. His Christ, if he has seen at all, is impoverished, thin, pale and scarcely capable of inspiring awe and his riches are entirely searchable. It is God that the church needs most, God in his grace and truth, God in his awesome and holy presence. And the Apostle Paul would say emphatically, Amen to that. In chapter 3 of Ephesians here, he comes back to that great thing, And he reveals to us, first of all, that, that his heart is filled with an incredible excitement about this God. He goes on to explain his uh, great prayer for, for, for uh, the people that he's writing to. And his prayer for them is that they should share his excitement. And I want us to, 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 to try to catch something of Paul's vision then. In our prayer lives this morning, as we engage with what excited him and what he prayed for for others, first thing is uh, uh, that that uh, I want us to look at is what what excited him, what really set him on fire, and um, uh, uh, perhaps the best way to uh, to describe it is that it, Paul sees that God has a great plan look at verse 10 his intent God's intent that is was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms this plan says Paul is, uh, is, is he, he describes as God's God's manifold wi- wisdom his wisdom which takes many forms you could say God understands the, the, the intricacies of human mo- uh, emotions and the future of the universe at the same time. He understands atoms and galaxies, love and justice. And God wants this wisdom of His to be, to be seen, to be observed In the highest courts in his creation, those rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms he's talking about are are angelic beings. He He wants to see his multifaceted wisdom display to the very ends of his universe, which is far beyond our universe that we see. His universe encompasses the spiritual realm too, of angels. He describes in verse uh, verse 11, um, God's great plan as His eternal purpose, verse 11. According to His eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God always knew what He was going to do with His creation and Christ was always at the centre of that plan. God intended to come to earth as a man to live amongst us. God intended in His Son to die on the cross for our sins. God intended then to raise His Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead, to seat Him at, the right hand, at His right hand as Lord over all creation until one day His people would be raised up too in a restored creation where there is no longer any sin or any pain. That is His eternal plan which was in his mind before the first atom existed. And then in verse 12, God's plan, having been described as his great wisdom reverberating to the whole of his creation, as his great plan stretching for the whole of eternity, that great, that, 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 that great plan then is described actually in deeply personal terms. Do you see verse 12? In him... And through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The very centre of what God wants to achieve in his universe is for people, human beings, who have turned away from him and cut themselves off from him to be reunited with him. For them to be able to come to him with nothing hidden no hesitancy but because Christ has died on the cross for them to be able to come to him now and for them to be able to finally come to him in his new creation and see him face to face. Not surprising then, that actually Paul says that the focus of God's great plan is his church. Did you see that? His intention, verse 10, was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Somehow right at the heart of God's plan is that God's church should display his wisdom because of God's God's church, the gathering of God's people is where God does that real miracle, that central miracle of reuniting people with him and preparing them for heaven. That thrilled Paul's heart to think that actually the little gatherings of people that he had a little part in seeing, uh, seeing come into being. People who were coming to know God and being reunited with God. To think that what, what, what was happening there was the focus of God's intention to display his glory everywhere, to fulfil his plan for all eternity, to bring people to himself. Now one day, he says, verse 13, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory, how, how could that be so? He was in prison, he was struggling a bit, and he was part of that 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 extraordinary, big plan of God. see, but so often we don't have that perspective, do we? We uh, become obsessed with self-pity when things are a little hard we we become aggressive or more morbidly uh, pessimistic or waste our time on, on, uh, on trivialities. I see it in my own heart. I see how easily I can, I, I can lose touch with it, with reality. I know as well, people go through really hard times sometimes. And there is no embarrassment in feeling that pain and engaging with it seriously with the fact that life can be deeply disappointing but we do not need to stay there just as Paul felt he didn't need to um, be discouraged as he felt the trials of this world he says if your eyes are open if you can see what God is doing be his That's Paul's great plan then. But we're going to focus then on his great prayer. And, and, And he prays that they would have great hearts, big hearts, He, he reassures the, these uh, these Christians uh, as, as he uh, explains his prayer for them, he reassures them that God is their father, the father of the family, his family, which is his people. He loves to give them good gifts. He reassures them that God has glorious riches so he is able to give. But uh, in verse 16 he begins to tell them what he is praying for them. And the first thing in this... Uh, a list of things he says he's praying for them is that they would have strong hearts I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being Christianity has actually always uh, been criticised as being weak Friedrich Nietzsche in the 19th century announced that Christianity made weakness a a virtue Adolf Hitler who uh, um, was much inspired by Nietzsche um, derided Christians along with um, uh, uh, the other Nazis uh, derided Christians as weak God lovers but you see the sort of strength that uh, uh, Hitler and others worship is a very brittle strength the sort of strength that ends up um, as Hitler did in suicide rather than face you music. Real strength is actually found in Christian virtue. It takes real strength to love people. It takes real strength to forgive people. It takes real strength to face the derision of those uh, who, 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 would, who would mock Christians. It takes real strength to follow Christ whatever the cost. Paul knows that. He says, I'm praying that your God would give you that strength from his glorious riches in your innermost being that you would have strong hearts, he says. I'm praying as well that you would have indwelt hearts, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, he says. Minis- the ministry of uh, the Spirit of God is to allow Christ himself to indwell our hearts. He indwells us, says Paul, as we trust him. That's the secret of, of how Christians behave in a Christ-like manner according to the New Testament. Because actually, by the work of the Holy Spirit, as we come to learn chakra, um, to trust Christ, Christ himself begins to dwell in the, in, in the human heart. And uh, um, as Claire was saying about this, this girl, Grace, um, we find actually ourselves being transformed. Sometimes completely to our surprise. because Christ has come to dwell there. The word translated dwell is, is, is um, uh, 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 one of two um, words that we use for dwelling in, in Greek. One was if you were staying somewhere for a while. The other was if you came to stay. This is the one coming to stay. Praying that Christ will come to stay in your heart. And that and that in so doing you would be transformed into the likeness of Christ. That's what he's praying. Praise as well for anchored hearts. Um, <coughs> in verse seventeen. Um that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and established in love. He says that, that phrase, rooted and established in love, actually uses two images. One of those images of, is of <coughs> roots as in the roots of a tree. He says, I'm praying that you would be like great, mighty tree, putting your roots down deep, anchoring yourself in the soil, drawing up nutrition, able to face winds and storms and even earthquakes without being uh, um, blown over. And then the second uh, word translated, established there is the image of the foundation of a building. Anyone who's watched a building being uh, uh, built knows how much time is spent on laying the foundations, because once they're laid properly, uh, the rest is just a matter of course. Well, Paul's saying, I'm praying that you would have those sorts of firm foundations. Everything else will be easily built and will stay in your life, he says, if you have foundations. And what is that root? What is that foundation? It is love. you will be rooted and established in love in God's love and the the eternal love that he has placed upon us and will never withdraw from us the profound strong love that was prepared to send his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross The love which orders the whole of creation for the church, the love that will not be broken even by death, that God will raise us up, and what gives us roots, and what gives us foundations. All praying. For that. And then he prays for open hearts as well. There you have power to, uh, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is this love of Christ. He says, "Christ's love is so so wide that no human being cannot be reached by His love." As Claire again said. It is so long that it lasts for eternity. It is so high it reaches to heaven. It's so, so deep it actually rescues us from the depths of hell. In the, uh, in, the, in the end, says Paul, God's love is beyond describing. You see that? To know this love that surpasses knowledge. Somehow it's beyond knowledge and yet we are to know it. Paul says, I'm praying for that that you would see that love of God that God would open your hearts be able to grasp how big it is and he says I'm praying for full hearts as well that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God Paul's Prayer is that the very life of God would flow into them so that they would be filled with God. See, it's the the smallest of our hearts, isn't it? The weakness of our grasp of these things. That... uh, makes us so often so hollow as T.S. Eliot describes it and um, we have to accept that only God really can do that work that's why Paul prays for it, for that Now he tells them he's praying for it for a particular reason. He wants them to see the path ahead. He wants them to see what God's um, purpose is in their life. And he wants to, to motivate them to pray for it themselves. But we cannot manufacture those things. They have hearts that are expanded in that way is the work of God himself. I want to just make a few observations this morning from my own uh, experience. Firstly I want to say that my, my ambition for this and my confidence that God can and does do it in people's lives is undiminished. I've seen him working in my own heart over the years, so that I personally now feel I have a fuller sense of God's love. I feel much more deeply anchored in, in, in God. I long for more, I know in my own life that there are times when, when I don't grow. But I do see it and I do see it in others as well. Do not give up on that great vision. Do not allow yourself to play the tape in your mind as you sit there. Yes, it's all very well for him to say that, but that'll never happen to me. It does. I see it. I do want to say though, and be frank, but I also see it not happening. I'm deeply aware that it's not automatic. I see Christians who have been Christians for a long time, still being fascinated by trivia, still becoming petulantly angry when they're 40s, still being dominated by anxiety. still failing to love others. Now this this growth, this this expansion of the heart is not automatic. The truth is that some Christians fail to grow as they should. I think some of it is because we never actually stop to really ask deep questions about our spiritual life. Some of you know that I, I, I keep a uh, spiritual journal. It's organised by uh, date and by the passages of scripture that, I, uh, that I'm reading. I find it extremely valuable for a number of reasons. One is that writing down my reflections on Biblical passages forces me to think about those passages clearly. I mean, how often do we, on a routine morning, if we we open our Bible at all, find that it just goes straight past us. Actually spotting one thing and jotting it down that I need to pray about, focuses our minds. In in my um, uh, prayer journal, I I, uh, try to always think about the previous day. I pray about people, I pray about how I behave, I pray about uh, what I thought. Why did I behave badly in that situation? How would Christ have behaved? What does God need to do in my heart that I should make progress in that, that area of my life? Should I have more horror of sin, more love for others, deeper confidence that God blesses the humble and topples the proud should I be more courageous with people more patient with people more gentle with people more confrontational with people I pray about those things and I ask that God would help me I pray about the coming day as well I ask for his wisdom I ask for him to help me with the, the spiritual challenges of that day I pray and that God would Fill my heart, open my heart, anchor my heart, indwell my heart, strengthen my heart. I pray for those things. And then when the next day comes I ask His forgiveness for those areas where I failed. I, I pray and thank Him for the areas where I see progress and I keep going. Another big advantage of a journal actually is that you can periodically do reviews. I can look back at what I've been praying for over the last few weeks or months or or years if I want to. I can look back at what struck me about the same passage of scripture at different times in my life. And sometimes that's very encouraging. I can see that God has helped me and I've grown. Sometimes I can see that there is an area of my life that just recurs again and again and again that needs attention and I know I need to work on that. Some people are suspicious of journals. It's certainly true that it can encourage a sort of um, obsessive introspection about me. But used rightly it can be a tool to help us to grow I, I just wonder how much failure in growth occurs if we just do not pray in a serious way and ask God to grow us in these areas and in these dimensions Let me say another thing. Let me encourage you to resolve to make some resolution to, to do better. But make that resolution manageable and achievable. We're coming towards the end of our series on prayer. And um, last one there. Uh, next week and the big danger is that there will be a sort of little spurt of uh, prayer in people's lives and that it will not last. When I was first a Christian I um, decided I needed to make some sort of resolution before God about prayer. I decided that um, I wanted to keep this resolution, I must therefore be realistic about what I could promise. I promised God that on most days, I thought it unwise to say on every day, um, but on most days, the majority of the days, I would pray for two minutes. Actually, it was a struggle when I was first a Christian, but I managed it. Two minutes became five and so on. What do you need to promise to God that you will do in order to really seriously embark on growing in your relationship with God. I long for us to be a people, you see, who live our daily lives, at work, in our families, amongst our friends, in the community of the church, everywhere, who live everywhere content but we are serving the God whom we know, whom we love, whom we delight in. We do live in a hollow world. We are called to be different, to be solid, to be great-hearted because of God, what God sets before us. And amazingly, as we focus on praying for that, God does that. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.